0: Okay, welcome everyone. The April edition of Arcs Chat has commenced. Before we get started and introduce our hosts and guests, uh, we will, uh, I'm, I'm John Robinette, by the way. <laughs> I'm not used to this position anymore. Um, so yes, <clears throat> I'm John Robinette. One of your co-hosts, Robin, is currently attending the ARC's board meeting uh, at the moment in Chicago, so she cannot be with us because I guess she's got more important things to do. So as a result, uh, I have to do uh, her dirty work here and uh, do it in a way that is not quite as good. So before we get started and before I introduce Amanda uh, and our guest, uh, I do want to remind everybody that... uh, with ARCS, we have the internship stipends. Are The applications for the internship stipends are due on April 15th. So if you haven't already applied, please go to the Arts website, arcsinfo.org, to apply. Also, tonight, if you are in the Chicago area, there is an ARCS meetup uh, at 5 p.m. Central Time. You would know that if you're in Chicago. Um, at the Elephant and Castle. So, uh, if you've always wanted John Simmons' signature um, and you know, autograph, please definitely show up at the Elephant and Castle. You probably still have time to get to catch a plane to get there, so we encourage everyone to attend. Uh, lastly, um, sign into your Google or your Gmail account in order to participate in the chat on YouTube, um, ask questions. Uh, of our panel and um make fun of me if you like <clears throat> and um I'll be monitoring the chat for these um <laughs> sorry I'm just not as good at this um I'll be monitoring the chat. <laughs> I'll be this is the funniest the intro we've thing. ever
1: had by the way <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah right um <clears throat> I'll be monitoring the chat for uh For for your questions and your comments uh, about about today's topic, Uh, but do note that there is a bit of a delay between the time that you put in the question and the time that it hits the satellite and makes it back down to uh, Earth and uh, reaches my computer. So um, with that, let me introduce our host today, Amanda Robinson. Hey,
1: John. That was very entertaining. Maybe you need to switch positions with Robin and do this all the time.
0: Not maybe, that Robin maybe, isn't
1: entertaining. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us again for another ARCS chat. Um, I'm here with, of course, John Robinette, my co-host, and today we are exploring NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. In particular, we're going to look today at the recently proposed changes to the program that were initiated in 2021. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Martina Dalle who is the director and TIPPO at the Wallapai Department of Cultural Resources. Dr. Dwale, thank you so much for being here with us today to talk, we appreciate you being here. And I was wondering before we begin, if you could share a little bit about your professional background and your current responsibilities at the Wallapai Department of Cultural Resources.
2: Sure, yeah. Um, well, hi everybody. Um, so, Really quickly, um, I do have a uh, doctoral degree in American Indian studies, which focuses primarily on um, um, preservation. uh, with a very, um, you know, close focus in conservation, um, museum conservation, but then that also becomes very, very broad when I look at uh, our cultural uh, belongings and our ancestors. Um, So that's, you know, pretty much my professional, I guess, criteria in a nutshell, but um, I am the director and the TIPO here at our uh, Walpi Department of Cultural Resources. Um, I did start out here in 2019 as the senior archeologist, And our um, director retired, and I became the director. Uh, The goal was to get a tribal member into this position. And so we succeeded. And so here I am now. Um, You know, primarily my position requires me to, you know, work with all the agencies, work with our tribal departments, and um, you know, do a whole bunch of things as far as programming projects, whatnot. So uh, I wear many hats, but at the same time, it all comes together. And it's all about our, um, you know, preserving our cultural uh, heritage here. So hopefully that makes a little sense. But you'll get to know me a little bit more hopefully throughout this discussion.
1: That's excellent. Thank you. Well, I figured um, for those of us who may not be very familiar, uh, let's see if we can't provide a brief overview of what NAGPRA is, um, the program and its history.
2: Oh, you're at, okay.
1: Oh yeah, would you be, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the expert. I can talk about it, but it probably wouldn't be very good.
2: <laughs> I, okay, so um, NAGPRA, which was enacted you know, in 1990, um, by a group of very very um, uh, concerned uh, tribal members, um, you know, back in that time frame in the uh, late '80s. Of course, prior that, uh, you know, since museums started, you know, taking things, there was always concern uh, of what you know was taken out, uh, from our communities. But um, the, the government, you know, worked with um, some of our um, um, tribal um, um, entities and were able to put together this this law, this congressional law. Um, but keep in mind, you know, before we get too too far into uh, NAGPRA, that um, the origins of NAGPRA started at the Smithsonian um, in uh, DC. Um, are actually in that area. <laughs> um, So I won't get into too much detail, but just know that the Native American Indian, what is that, NMHI Act, which is at the Smithsonian, uh, is completely um, um, separate from NAGPRA. So anything that's at the uh, NMHI Native, National Museum of American Indian, (laughs) anything that's there does not um, uh, adhere to NAGPRA. So they're completely uh, separate um, acts. So just keep that in mind. Um, And if you want to know more, just Google it. You'll find all that information because it is quite the story, (laughs) but just keep that in mind. So NAGPRA um, is... um, Mostly um, uh, applied to any uh, federal uh, entity or um, institution, agency, lands that you know uh, actually receive federal monies. Um, so be it like a school, uh, museum, um, you know the uh, um, the federal lands that you know we are a part of, like the National Park Services and whatnot. Um, so anyway, the um, the purpose of NAGPRA, which was enacted around 1990, was to um, have all these uh, entities go through their collections and provide this vast inventory so that the tribes can actually come in and uh, you know I wouldn't want to say state claim, but actually. Know that you know our ancestors, our ancestral uh, belongings, and uh, ancestors are housed there, and then provide us the opportunity, provide you know nations the opportunity to repatriate, to take you know take the ancestors home, take the belongings home. Uh, so you know, in a nutshell, that's pretty much what uh, NAGPRA, uh entails. Uh, it also um, protects um, any kind of um, um, burials or um, uh, associated funerary uh, objects that um, agencies who are, you know, working on projects or anyone who's, you know, um, building or whatever uh, they come across. So, you know, it is by law. They do have to um, report that to their uh, local agency, their state SHPO, uh who, whoever, whatnot. You know, because each state runs differently. And then the tribes are um, um, contacted, and then you know we go through the process of, process of consultation. So again, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, is all encompassed there. Um it also um protects anything that you know is on the land. So for example, you know, when you're out, you know, visiting the park service or any other place, you know, there's always this temptation to take potsherds and uh any kind of like you know, um arrowheads or whatever you find on the ground, you, you can't take that because that is a federal offense. So that also um protects. Anything that's you know on the land, under under the land. So, yeah, that's what NAGPRA is all about. Um, Thank you for for that. I'm curious
1: if you could explain a little bit as we go into this. Um, who on a federal level manages the program and kind of enforces compliance among institutions and other agencies that are um, subject to the law.
2: Um, well, that's the, um, (laughs) that's the frustration with tribes. The tribes don't manage that.
1: (laughs) Right. It's a federally managed program. It's a federally managed Mm.
2: program. And it, um, gives the museums, let's, let's just say museum, you know, for simplicity, um, the, um, the ability to make decisions and, you know, to decide whether or not they want to, um, uh, you know, move forward if a tribe, you know, comes in and says, you know, these are our ancestors, then the museum has every right to question the tribes and ask them, you know, um, for proof, you know, that's just point blank, you know, the, the ultimate truth. That's where the frustration lies with tribes because bringing in, elders and, um, you know, explaining to them, especially if they have the exact location where, you know, the um, belongings were removed, it becomes a frustration knowing that, you know, our elders know uh, who we are and what, you know, where, you know, these things belong. So that's basically uh, the gist of that. It does become very contentious. Some museums over others are a little bit more uh, flexible and understanding. Um, but I'll have to honestly say, in my experience, some of those decisions, uh, unfortunately, are based on uh, how much time the museums want to hang on to the things for uh, their own study and their own research um, before they start to affiliate them, which, uh, again, you know it's time for these changes to happen.
1: That's interesting. So the burden of proof really is on tribal members or tribes in order for repatriation. And it kind of reminded me, John, I think the first session we had this season in ARCS chat was all about repatriation with the book that Alex wrote. And I'm trying to read, so this is like repatriation in a in a more, um, global sense, not just within the United States, but repatriation from institutions here to um, I guess, home countries in other parts of the world. Uh like the binning and bronzes, is that the big one of the more bigger topics? So that's what that conversation, just to give you context, um, Martina, uh, was about. And I'm trying to recall from that conversation if the burden of proof really, it really does lie with the um the individual or the entity making the claim, not the institution that houses it. It's like possession is nine-tenths of the law or whatever that phrase is.
2: Right, right. And that's where it, you know, becomes really frustrating because, you know, the museums, especially if they're um, um, at a university, in a university setting, uh, and a lot of those museums were founded by, um, you know, people who were uh, collecting a lot and taking those things in, so they published, and as you all know, uh, publications in um, you know scholarly journals or um, uh, you know any kind of books that they uh, publish that have been reviewed by their colleagues are uh, have a lot more credential than the uh, you know the actual um, people that they're studying, which is really ironic but you know mm-hmm. that's definitely is is a is a huge um issue and i can honestly say that was something i struggled with as a uh, student in the university um having to write my dissertation you know it just was extremely um i would say you know frustrating having to cite you know all these scholars just to prove, you know, where I got the information. You know, I couldn't cite, you know, my mom, I couldn't cite my grandparents. I, you know, and I would always be corrected. So I had to cite uh, another scholar. So it really, um, you know, on one hand, it was really frustrating and I was angry about it. On the other hand, I was able to discover uh, other native scholars who were able to back up that information because I was determined to have some kind of citation from, you know, someone who, who is native rather than having to cite, you know, an anthropologist who went to speak to a native to, you know, vouch for that person and then publish it. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of times, you know, as an indigenous person doing any kind of research with our own communities, we have a harder time because there's the sense of bias, meaning that, you know, we're already kind of like contaminated for our subjects because, you know, we can't really interview them or take their take the information and then be uh, objective about it. So there's that struggle. in in academia, um, which is kind of weird, you know, it's like the uh, guy who is like the leading expert in uh, women's studies is not female, but, you know, because he's objective and he's a guy, it's like, then he all all of a sudden is the leading guy who's very well cited for Native, for American Indian studies. And that was really frustrating. I'm all like, who is this guy? You know, this friend (laughs) who went out to the desert and took acid. I don't want to say his name because I just don't care to, you know, popularize him anymore. But, you know, the more I learned about him, I'm all like, wow, you know, this is really, really um, frustrating that we have to rely on some white guy to be the spokesperson for all of us. So yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. I ramble about that forever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, again, so that that um that balance is really off when it comes to um affiliation and having to prove, you know, your own culture. Uh mm-hmm. anything that's really simple to beadwork, to leather canning, you know, um, Uh, medicine bundles, you know, because the archaeologists and the anthropologists uh, will argue and say, well, you know, you know, this came from this uh, time period, and it was more, you know, um, uh, it was a lot more um, of the word right now, prevalent, you know, in this era and amongst this culture and this group, and you're like, what? You know, <laughs> so it's you know, and that and that, and that same thing lies with um, dealing with the agencies when they have to hire their archaeology crews to do any kind of surveying on the land. So when they do the cultural component, were uh, labeled as proto proto-Indians or proto-cultures, you know, so we're like after the fact, so there's still the separation of, uh, our ancestors and, um, that I think stems from early, uh, studies, you know, of uh, by anthropologists separating us and still there's just this weird, uh, fascination with like the Bering Strait and finding out where did these um, prehistoric people come from, you know? (laughs) And, you know, and so we can, you know, continue to tell, you know, the anthropologists and archeologists that these are our ancestors so we're blue in the face and that we've been here since time immemorial. And yet, you know, their studies and to differ depending on their interpretation mm. and um and i'm finding that really fascinating just reading uh, for example Krover is one of the leading experts for the tribe i'm enrolled with and it becomes really frustrating when you read that and you realize wow who the heck did he interview you know was that somebody's crazy uncle that was making up stories so that he can get paid you know Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how I look at things. You have to be very, very careful. Um, And I only say that um, uh, candidly, I guess, because in my experience uh, working at the museum, there was always this like timeline, hurry, hurry, hurry. So if someone was putting up an exhibit for um, something that's Navajo, you know, the protocol is you need to contact the tribe and the cultural resources and the appropriate people so that no one is being misrepresented. But it was like, well, I know so-and-so and and they're Navajo or they're Autumn or, you know, they're Hopi or whatever, and we'll just get them in here. And then after looking at the history, it was the same person that been they had been, um speaking to for the past you know 20 years for that and then speaking to the tribes they were not happy with who was representing them but they couldn't argue with the museum because you know it was just an exhibit <laughs> so that you know so again you know there are these timelines hurry up we got to get this grant done um and not taking the time to try to create these relationships with the communities that surround um, that museum is really um, frustrating. And I think that also ties into affiliation with the tribes and not really getting to know the community.
1: Mm. Well, some of the things that you touched on is, um, it's interesting because I know we wanna talk a little bit today about some of the proposed changes to, um, to the act and how it's written. Um, and a lot of feedback, and we'll throw these resources into the chat so people can follow along and see um, some of the changes that are being proposed. But a lot of them deal with defining language or redefining language, so it's more appropriate in and in line with, um, my understanding is with how tribes would like to be referred to. It doesn't other, like the language is not as othering as it has been in the past. but. Mm-hmm a lot of um, accountability standards also seem to be kind of clarified, more streamlined uh, in that regard. And uh, Well, we've talked a little bit about some of the the challenges of the program. I'm curious from your perspective, what some of the positives are from Niagara having been enacted since the, the early 90s.
2: Um, I think the positives would be that, you know, museums and um, the different entities have become more aware of who we are as people um, and that, you know, we do um, uh, have a culture that is still alive and still very vibrant. And again, you know, you really have to understand um, the, uh, I, not the idea, but the whole, you um, um, I wouldn't say the whole, but just the content of um, American Indian law and policy. His idea was to eventually, you know, have us homogenize into the Americans. You know, we're all going to be Americans. So moving everybody on a reservation, sending their children off to boarding schools to become more civilized and Christian. And, you know, taking away the languages, the cultural components and whatnot was really uh, uh, forced upon us, you know, you know, back when, you know, the, um, the wars had subsided and there was this need for assimilation, um, because prior to that, you know, there was really no way that they, the government or the, um, um, the U.S. was able to exterminate every single one of us. So, you know, our ancestors really, um, uh, hung on to the, they are and we continue to fight that fight but in the meantime you know when you move when you fast forward into today to really understand the importance of these these congressional acts it really enforces uh who we are you know when you look at the definition of uh Native American or American Indian you know they always put like something in there that says that you know we have a special relationship with the US government and that's the definition is that our special uh relationship has everything to do with the fact that we are the original inhabitants so any land that um we have lost um is truly land that was lost and taken from us but the land that we reside on right now called reservations are not land that the government gave us. They're lands that we still have been able to uh, hang on to because of that relationship and working, um, not working, but actually um, um, having some kind of negotiating powers with Congress during that time period So for example, our land base here in uh, Peach Springs, our our Wallapai tribe uh, were an executive order uh, reservation. So the president ordered that we have this area. This is our property um, and this is who we are. This is where we're at. um, You know, it's still land held in trust, but you know, the government, uh, our Congress, or, you know, your founding fathers decided that, well, you know, we'll we'll go ahead and let them keep a little piece of land because in time, they're all going to, uh, you know, filter out and they're going to leave. And then the land base will just completely diminish. But that didn't happen. And so we're still here. Um And so with NAGPRA coming in, it really um, uh, elevated that, um, our voice and and who we are. So when you look at the um, people who uh, initiated this act, you know, um, they were extremely um, uh, disturbed to find that. So basically what had happened was a group of um, uh, Native people from, you know, back in that area, back East. Um, They were um, interested in some uh, objects, you know, some belongings in the museum. They had heard that there were um, headdresses and whatnot. And of course they were invited, they came in. So when they got there, you know, they're looking and, you know, there are all these drawers and, you know boxes and whatnot. So out of curiosity, they were like, you know, what what all do you have here? So you know the museum people, the curators, you know, being excited, wanting to share the information. Well, you know, we have all these collections, and then we also have uh, human remains, and that was just like what you know, <laughs> and that became extremely like, you know, this, you know, why, and so that uh, really. Uh, I think we could look at that as positive. I mean, we knew uh even before then there were human remains, but to really be there and see them and how they're uh um how they're shelved and, and boxed up was really uh eye-opening. So for that to become um uh you know um uh, publicized and put out there and, and, you know, being fought for. And then knowing that there were uh, legislators. anyway, there were lawyers, and there were people uh, there that were willing to uh, uh, support um, the tribal members, that was really important. And then finding out that, you know, that wasn't the only museum, that there are museums all over the country with uh, similar collections. And uh, that became, you know, something that was like extremely, you know, important. It was mandated. I believe that was like in the late 1880s when all of this was happening. So in a sense, it seemed pretty quick that, you know, the, the, the law was enacted in 1990 and um, to the best of my knowledge, I believe it hasn't been amended since 1995. And so we're really looking forward to a lot of these changes that are occurring. Um, And um, yeah, so it's really um, something that has provided um, tribes in the United States uh, um, the rights to be able to um, bring back our ancestors, uh, bring back the belongings and to actually work with the museums. And um, granted, you know, back in the 1990s, where the heck was, I I was probably just having kids and hanging out at home, but I knew, you know, what was happening. I knew about NAGPRA. I knew generally what was going on. But um, now that, uh, you know, I'm at this point in my life, just looking back and looking at the changes uh, you know, it began with a very, um, um, you know, um, patriarchal like attitude, you know, we're gonna help you, we know what to do, and this is what's gonna happen. And then this idea that in 25 years, it's gonna all be taken care of, and yet here we are. And, you know, trying to go through museums. Uh, and, you know, like I had mentioned before, um, uh, it's almost like, you know, hoarders. <laughs> in a lot of these museums, you know, not only do the museums have their um, collections area, uh, some of them, if they're small enough, have them close by. But then some of them have areas that they have to either rent out or build for all their um, their uh, collections, and some of them have not been through it. So when I started out. Um, as a student working at the Arizona State Museum, um, we were going through the pottery collection and they had received the grant to create this amazing repository for their pots. And um, so my job was to go into the repository and help out the person who was doing all the condition reports. Uh, you know, I did the simple photography. I'm not a professional photographer by any chance, but I picked up each pot and I put it on the table and took a picture of it just for documentation purposes. Um, And and so that was really interesting to know that, you know, every pot that I picked up hadn't been touched for like almost like 50 years or so. You know, they had just been there and some of them, I could honestly say, you know, it was terrifying to pick up a pot that hadn't been touched and, it just crumbled in your hand. It was like really, really weird to to, to experience something like that because um, you know the uh, archaeologists would glue them back together again, and some of the glue, which is a good thing in conservation, <laughs> didn't you know completely uh, stick, and they were able to remove it. But you know to actually pick it up and then move it and then just carefully let it you know all fall down and then. And then, you know, watching the conservators really take charge of that. But yeah, so again, you know, there are places that probably haven't had the chance to really go through their uh, collections over, you know, so many years. And I'm sure there are hidden places in the museums, not purposely hidden, but just places where, you know, Somebody, a curator had worked there many years and then didn't say anything to anybody. And then, you know, things are just like really, you know, in different places. But um, yeah. And so over the years, um, the uh, museum that I had worked at for a while, um, they were able to inventory as much as they could. Um, And right now they're moving in uh, phases to repatriate that. Uh, the the collections that they have. Um, and a lot of it is you know, you know, working in a museum, it's a lot of work. So you really need a full-time staff to inventory everything because again, you know, on top of um, you know, putting out exhibits and doing your day-to-day museum mm-hmm. jobs, having to be there inventorying is a lot of work. Um, you know, so it, it is, it is, it is a lot of work. And in addition to those pots, I was able to also work on another grant where I was literally in this closed space um, testing every single Navajo rug uh, for arsenic, you know, so I was oh, in sure. the machine testing that. And so we needed to do that in order to, um, create some kind of um, uh, telltale of what possibly has arsenic, uh, what the levels were. And, you know, if any of it is repatriated, we needed to make sure that, you know, the communities who are receiving these things are not going to be harmed in any way, which, you know, of course, you know, the story behind that issue. So it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, there's a lot of, Uh, And I hate to say this word, but there's a lot of (laughs) (laughs) minutiae. So, yeah. Um, But yeah, I I think that, that might, you know, long, you know, the long story is that I think those are the positive things with NAGPRA. It has brought in more of more Native people to be involved into this process.
1: John, I think you had a question you wanted to ask. Oh, he's I'm
0: not me. sure I can, I'm not sure I can hear you there, John. About that. Yeah. Um, Got to turn the mic on. Um, <laughs> look at me just batting, batting a thousand today. Um, so um, I, my follow-up question is, um, does NAGPRA sort of allow you, I mean, this is a, maybe it's an, an inappropriate analogy, but is it sort of like a search warrant? Can you sort of, Request a collection audit of a museum, maybe in 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 legal terms, right? In from to to see that they have or have reported documented their collection properly according to the law. Is that does it allow for that?
2: Um, in my experience, uh, most museums, it's not you know there, there's not like that extreme contentious relationship unless you know, something horrible happens. And, you know, people become a little bit more like, you know, trying, wanting to find out. But in um, most of the museums that I've experienced, that it's pretty um, uh, welcoming where, you know, you just call up and say, well, we want to find out uh, more about, you know, your collections were from such and such tribe. And we just wanted to see, if you had any of you know our um, ancestors there or whatever you know you're looking for. And then uh, depending on the museum, I think they're all different, then you just go through the process, you know, working with the curator and such. Um, but I know when I was doing a small research assignment in one of my classes. I did that with the NMAI over at the Smithsonian. They do have a form on their website. You fill out, and then they, um, um, and then they will um, give you a copy of everything that's been inventory and recorded that's related to or associated to your tribe, um, and then you can maintain that um, um, that contact with them. So, in a sense, you know, um, I think. Prior NAGPRA, the tribes were approaching museums and institutions in that way of like a search warrant. Like we heard, you know, this was here, we want it back. And, you know, people were protesting. But uh, uh, now I think most museums tend to uh, do some outreach and create a relationship with the tribes. Not, you know, some of the relationships aren't great, I have to admit, but at least you know the tribes know that they're supposed to be compliance and you know order and, and moving that direction. But yeah, you know, you can still um, um approach the, the museum if you feel that well hmm, I was just there looking and I think I saw something that looked like you know, from our tribe and you can contact them and they're usually pretty uh, um, open and are willing to speak to people. Um, But I know from uh, experience from other tribes, our tribe hasn't had to deal with this just yet, but there are some museums that, even though they do have the collections, they're very um, um, uh, staunch on, you know, returning and that's where the affiliation argument comes into play where, you know, the tribes have a really hard time, you know, well, that's when the burden is huge, you know, and the uh, tribes have a hard time proving to them because then that museum uh, is given that um, discretion to decide whether or not, you know, they're gonna take the tribes' word for it, so, yeah so necessarily not not a major uh like we're coming in with the search warrant
0: yeah i didn't want to paint it in a contentious way but uh you know uh you know just thinking about it being a um you know does it allow you to um gain further access to a, an institution's collection
1: uh, right. Like, does that give it does it give that type of autonomy to tribes or tribal yeah. peoples so that they have some right to request information. And I do actually think some of the changes that are being discussed and we can talk about those a little um, a little more in depth now, because I think we're getting some questions about them in the chat. Is that it kind of there's gonna be very clear and defined timelines and response times that institutions have to meet in order to um, respond to like a claim for repatriation. Uh, as some of the updates that, they're, that are forthcoming or that I should say are proposed to be forthcoming. Um, I know we talked a little yeah. earlier, some of the adjustments uh, are gonna be revisions of language uh, to remove confusing language, but also to better define, um, I think one of the specific things was for, find it in my notes. for any types of um, materials or human remains that are not affiliated with a tribe, instead of being called, I think, culturally unaffiliated, they're just geographically mm-hmm. unaffiliated. So it. my understanding with that is that it would not, um, it still implies that they belong to a culture of some point, we just haven't figured out where they are and they're geographically located here. So I think it kind of takes away this ambiguity of what it may be and where it may go and and what might happen to it afterwards. It still kind of holds on to like, just because we don't know who, what tribe this belongs to or what family this belongs to, we still know that it belongs to someone.
2: Yeah. And that culturally unidentifiable, in, Mm -hmm. in, in other words, too, from a Native point of view, it's really offensive because you know you think about it culturally unidentifiable you know it just sounds so um you know i guess to put it bluntly it just sounds so racist like we don't know who it is and that's where a lot of um uh you know that contention lies because sometimes you know with the whole situation with the ancestor up at um um goodness um the river I really don't like to call the ancestor that um, they, um, they had just the huge argument, and um, it's my mind will come back to it, but it was in Washington. Um, oh, yeah, the ancestor from Kennewick. You know, I personally don't like to refer to the ancestor as Kennewick man, because that's really like just weird. Or yeah. Anyway, so for example, you know, that ancestor with everyone just fighting, you know, because it was culturally identifiable, it almost like, you know, put the ancestor up for grabs for anybody to claim that individual. And um, you know, there were all kinds of people claiming them. And I remember when I was still um uh in my um early in my uh PhD program, uh our professor that we I was working with for one of the classes anyway. He had invited this archaeologist to come in, or this anthropologist. Anyway, he came in to talk about um, Nagpra and um, you know all these components. And so the guy was just really really flippant, and he had an image of the uh, ancestor, uh, how they did the uh, reproduction of the ancestor and but, you know, uh, an image of Picard from Star Trek or Star, yeah, you know, and said that, you know, oh, I think he's French. He looks French. And, you know, you're in an auditorium with 300 students and they're all laughing. And as a tribal member, you're sitting there thinking, why are they, sorry about this, but it's emotional. You know, they're making fun of an ancestor and being extremely flippant about it. So that was, that's where that you know is very painful for our culture and and in, in and mind you inside these museums that you know um put their labels on it you know there's sticky tabs and numbers all over the place uh labeling them as ufo's unidentified you know uh objects unidentified cultural objects you know it's you know it, it it's really um uh, offensive and working in a museum as an indigenous person and having to be around that was always frustrating and um yeah so it you know it you really have to have a thick skin as a native person to be in these kinds of institutions but yeah i just wanted to let you know that you know um that term is you know very very um offensive to um, the yeah, indigenous peoples here in America, anywhere. Page relations.
1: <laughs> All right. At our institution, we use radios to communicate, <laughs> and that was major. Now I, <laughs> I apologize for that interruption. <laughs> no worries. Um. Uh, I actually just asked John to go ahead and drop into the chat the PDF of all the drafted changes so that um, one of the questions we had come through was asking if we could be uh, if we could go over with those positions. So I popped that in there so everyone can see them. Um, it does a nice job of breaking down um, it looks like there's three subparts from the, I'm sorry, or subparts that are being revised or being mm-hmm. proposed for revision. And uh, as, as we've previously talked about, a lot of it is clarity of language and um, more appropriate language that uh, you know refers to people appropriately and um, with respect. And then a lot of timelines are being added, some clarity on what expectations are in terms of what institutions need to provide uh, with inventories, with uh, following up on claims, um, the postings in the federal register that, that need to happen. Uh, those timelines are being clarified and specified as well. Um, last part, it the last section of that PDF that we put in does a nice job of showing previous language versus changed language. So you can really, and there's a lot, I mean, you had mentioned before that it was 1990, possibly 1995 when we did the last major update to the, to the act, yeah. so this will be a huge adjustment, I would think. Certainly not the last one, I would imagine. And it's funny, we were talking a little earlier before the chat. um, I was telling Dr. Dolly, I was reading the last report to Congress. Um, There is a review committee, a NAGPRA review committee, that's part of the program. Um, And every year they provide a report to Congress, and it's pretty blunt. It's pretty honest and forthright with the limitations and barriers that um, are that both, um, and the National Park Service that kind of enforces and and runs the program, I think. And, um, you know, the needs, the needs of institutions for grant money to support the research and the time as you've already talked about, it's a lot. It's funny, I was thinking, oh gosh, um, you know, providing inventories of all of your human remains and all of the sacred objects that you have in your collection. And I'm thinking to myself, oh God, (laughs) just to do an inventory of our entire collection like, but our institution, it's a five-year process. So, to nice. provide that type of important information in a timely manner it would be a lot for you know any institution to be able to accommodate and do. Um, and you know, you need resources and staff and dedicated people to support that, which I hope is forthcoming and will continue to grow in progress.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, it's funny if you, if if we you had mentioned that some of the history. At the time, because this was 25 years ago that, no, 20, what year were we in? 2021? <laughs> I know, I'm all like, what? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so 21 years ago that the law came to be, and there was a the thought that within 25 years, we could have everything inventoried and, and repatriated. But that's almost, looking back on it now, that seems like an impossible assumption or, or goal to have had at the time, because there's just so much to be done. And- yeah. I would also wonder too that even the inventories that institutions are able to produce, how accurate they are, because oftentimes even you know a painting gets misappropriated or you know misidentified. So how many people or sacred objects are not being properly cataloged? So there's a yeah. barrier there with making sure proper information is available to tribal members, that um, yeah. they can start trying to find you know where where things are what may need to come back and be repatriated and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm. No, that yeah, yeah, you definitely have to physically go and look at the mm-hmm. the collections and um make sure and you know and that's another word that a lot of the tribes don't like use either is collections, you know. <laughs> and so you know we try to um educate and teach museums and these other places to use the term belongings, um, because, you know, they're, they belong to somebody, you know, they belong to, yeah, they they belong to somebody and, and using the term ancestors and ancestral belongings, our ancestors' belongings, basically, you know, the ancestors mean human remains and our ancestral remains. And, um, ancestor belongings, ancestral belongings, uh, would be the associated uh, funerary objects. It just is again so um, uh, detached, and and we get it. You know, um, a lot of um, us who are in this professional um, position, we get the terminology because it's that's what it, how it's written. So in order to uh, um you know make sure that these processes are expedited and the terminology we use it's this you know it's legal when you think about anything in law, you know, the perpetrator, the victim, you know, it these terms are so um um inhumane or demoralizing sometimes if you're like, ah, so it's the same thing. But um in in the sense of just being able to speak, um about them in a more humane context, it's best to use those terms uh, when you're speaking, not only with uh, indigenous people, but with each other, you know? And that's sometimes where the problem lies because again, working in a museum, you do have to have a thick skin because I can go to a consultation. Well, I went from a consultation and this is when I was working at the museum I was working at, you know, I would come from a consultation after the tribe insisted use this term, don't use that term, please, you know, don't refer to this ancestor as, um, you know, the such and such collection. Um, But they would be like, okay, and, you know, agree with it to their face, and then come back, and then we're in a meeting, and they're utilizing the terminology that they were asked not to use. And then I'd have to say something and then I'd get barked at and then it would just go back and forth. And it's like, oh my God. So, you know, being the only native person in a, a room full of white, you know, um, um, museum people, anthropologists, archeologists, it, you know, it, it you really have to have a, a thick skin and, and be strong. And unfortunately there were times when I just couldn't take it. It was really frustrating. And, and then you lose your articulation and then you used your, your sense of who you are and then you become this bumbling fool, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then, and, you know, and and then it comes all the way down to being a woman in a man's world. And you just all of a sudden look silly and you're like, ah, okay, calm down. It's going to be okay. Um, But yeah, it, it, it is, it is um, quite the um, environment to be in, you know, Well, we're trying to um, comply to all these uh, laws and these rules, especially when it has to do with um, our ancestors. Um, And then, you know, having to define, you know, just watching an elder, watching a uh, a native person, you know, and being on the agency side, just watching them and listening to them, um, having to define sacred. It's so it's it's the meaning, you know. Um, and then I'm on this side now, you know, working for our tribe. And I we still get that question, you know, we're working with the um Glen Canyon Dam and we just came, we just had a meeting last week and they wanted us to define sacred. <laughs> like, Dudes, what's going on? You know, we already talked about this and that's what the tcps are all about so i think a lot of this confusing language is i think mostly for the museums when they're trying to understand um, what these these uh, terms mean um, yeah and again you know it is some areas are quite ambiguous but at the same time it's a straightforward law. And, and in any legal sense, anything that's straightforward, there's always some way to loop in and out of it and prove that, you know, it you know, they can do something else other than what the law states. And, um, during my uh, study with my research, I had interviewed, uh, a professor who uh, wrote a lot on NAGPRA, and I asked him about it. And that was his um, point blank like comment. The law is written, you know, it's, you know, the way they're, you know, maneuvering through it is, you know, that's what they're doing. And it really made a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, but it is about time. There are areas that really need um, amending.
1: That leads us to, because we're getting top of the hour here, so we'll try and wrap it up a little bit. I was curious if you felt that you could share, even with these changes coming down the pipeline, what might be future future adaptations to NAGPRA that may be needed um, and why those may be important? Oh,
2: my goodness. Um, There's a lot. And again, a lot of it falls into that minutia. You know, we're looking at, you know, determining what the heck <clears throat> is considered um, sacred. You know, what is um, considered a cultural item. <clears throat> and one thing that um, you know we've had to deal with is hair, um, <laughs> anything that comes off the body. Mm -hmm. um uh, menstruation aprons the blood that came from a human being from a person so those things don't fall under NAGPRA and that's just been a very that's been an interesting um uh discussion amongst um some of my colleagues so for example you know they're over at the uh, Arizona State Museum there's this humongous it's longer than a football field um rabbit net made out of human hair but that doesn't fall under NACRA because it's not considered I guess a human remain (laughs) it's something that fell off a human so you know things like that you know really need some um need to be a part of that you know a part of this because again you know um for a lot of cultures hair is really important uh, and you know for native cultures it's hair is really important and then you know the menstruation aprons you know archaeologists have found uh these uh, pieces of bark uh are these bark menstruation pads that comes along with the apron and there's actual blood in it mm. And so many of the museums throughout the country have a collection of these menstruation aprons uh, with the blood in it. And it's like, you know, wow, but it's not a NACRA item because it belonged to an individual. It didn't belong to the whole community. If it's something that belonged to the whole community, then yeah, it could be NACRA, but it didn't, it belonged to an individual. So yeah, so these things really need to be defined. Um, uh, and it, it is it is quite, um, quite frustrating because again, it all comes down to the discretion of the museum to make that decision. And granted, there are a very small I wouldn't even say a handful, maybe less than a handful of museums who would be willing to just, you know, return something. But a lot of times um, it also comes down to their interest, you know, because these things are what keeps their museum running. You, know, you They've got their donors, they've got their interested parties, and, you know, these are exciting uh, pieces for them to. Con- hold on to and to display and again it just becomes a whole like uh industry of like collections you know not just hoarding but you know look what I have and you know this is really exciting for us yet they try to um um uh you know switch the wording and and tell the community members and native people that oh we're doing it Help you preserve your culture <laughs> you know we're we're helping you preserve your culture without us you know you would not have a culture and you know you'll see a lot of writing like that and that's what really becomes frustrating um, and i you know again going back to uh crover and his writing on the indigenous people and he's heavily cited um, for you know california natives for wallapai natives and then you, you know, of course, Boaz leads the way with the natives up in Alaska, uh, up in the north. So these guys, you know, they're the ones that, um, you know, really introduced this whole idea of culture and uh, anthropology. And again, you really have to also uh, look at the, the the discipline. You know, we, we think NAGPRA is like, brand new because you know it was enacted in 1990 the discipline of anthropology is brand new because it was introduced in the um you know um late 1800s early 1900s you know with these guys and when you look at who the grandfathers of anthropology are you see these familiar names and um and or you know what were the objects or the um subjects of their study. And it was us, the indigenous people, you know, it was the indigenous people of the different contents. So the discipline was created on the backs and the blood of the indigenous people of different contents. And so to not have us have a part of that, to have a say, to have any kind of um, voice in that really is, um, really shows how, um, you know how cut and dry it is when it comes to you know to racism um, and uh, this whole idea of the other. So it it is it is quite um, quite the uh, um, oh goodness what is the word I'm looking for conundrum I guess <laughs> it it is it, it's really it, you know it's frustrating it's uh, upsetting um, it's very sad and again it's confusing you know um i have a um a bachelor's degree in anthropology and i focused in southwest archaeology with a, a a minor in um geology so i was more interested in in the field of you know archaeology at that time and the reason why i chose that major was because Being home, I spent five seasons working at Canyon de Shea as a park ranger and got to know some anthropologists and archaeologists and thought, this is really interesting. Why are they studying us? What are they knowing? What do they know? And then uh, having to um, go out into the field, I worked as a contract archaeologist and learned right away how to, you know, do a lot of the field work, and then it ended up where I was actually teaching the people who had degrees uh, how to um, read the, the dirt or the profiles and to find the different features and things that are associated with that, and I thought, wow, you know, I don't even have a degree. Maybe I should go in and get a degree in this so I can understand Um, what is going on and whether or not what I'm doing is right or wrong, so I did. I went into that field and um, graduated, and then once I graduated, I was encouraged to move forward and think about a degree in American Indian Studies. Um, I think it was my last year uh, as an undergrad, I took an American Indian Studies course, and that really changed my life because you really have to understand the history of this continent to really understand why these laws are in place. And you have to understand the history of the discipline that you're in to really understand why we're where we're at right now. So those things coming together may really make sense to me as to why, you know, as not why, but where we're at now. Um, So, you know, moving forward into now, you know, with a uh doctoral degree in American Indian Studies and focusing in um conservation, you know, I went into conservation not knowing that I was gonna become uh um, more interested in um cultural preservation because as you know, you know, the cons- conservation schools are very few and far between. It's very um uh, exclusive and not very many people can afford them. And by the time I was at that time in my life, there was no way I could afford to be a, a legit conservator with a degree, according to AIC. <laughs> you know, so there are these like areas where there's so much, uh, you know, uh, um, I don't know, these these little clubs where you have to be legit and have these these titles behind your name to be considered a real conservator. So I continued to, with my hands-on work as a conservator, and then I continued working in the field of thinking about NAGPRA and how that uh, associates with conservation and what the conservators uh, um, are doing in that area. And then I started asking the question, well, how many native people are conservators? And, you know, I was given a handful of names. I contacted those people and they're like, well, no, we don't really have a conservation degree, but this is what they're calling us. And I said, okay, so fine, you know, that's fine. So I went, Even further, and I started studying and figuring out who the conservators were. And this is where uh, I went deep and started researching the field of anthropology, conservation, and uh, the history of American Indian studies and put it all together. So that makes a lot more sense than trying to uh, just understand one thing. You know, you really need to know the whole story. Uh, and, and, you know, why museums are so interested in their collections. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, just having that um, background has really helped me understand, um, you know, what's going on here with NAGPRA and why it's really important that, you know, NAGPRA does not, um, um, uh, you know, The NMAI Smithsonian doesn't have to comply with NAGPRA, it's easier for me to say it that way, um, because they're a whole separate um, act or a whole separate law, but they do have the same components. Anyway, um, so I'm going to stop right there. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much for joining us we're a little over our time so we'll oh. have to say goodbye oh no you're fine uh, it's important this is important to talk about and i'm, I'm grateful that arcs had the opportunity to, to have you on and for you to be able to share your your professional background and knowledge and your history we'll get some we'll get some of those resources posted in the description on youtube and in the podcast which will come out later this week on friday thank you so much for joining us and thanks everyone for listening in We'll head out for the day, and we'll see you next month for our chat.
0: Thank you so much. Right. Look out for the podcast coming on Friday. Ah!